Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, and it's also hard to believe that um, after today, there's really only two more days left in April. This month has gone by fast, uh, but then again, it seems like the year itself has gone by fast. But nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air. Uh, But then again, um, I don't ever recall a time when I wasn't glad to be back on the air. Um, That would not be a good thing, to say the least. But um, in this uh, segment, To the Fire of His Genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream, uh, we will be on um, part two. Uh, We talked um, in the first um, segment of, uh, rather, uh, part one of two from the previous night, if I recall, we uh, were learning things about Fulton that um, were both good and uh, not so good, but it might be fair to say that we have learned um, an assortment of stuff about Robert Fulton throughout this series that that have been good, but other things have come into question, you know, making us wonder you know, is this guy the real deal? In other words, yes, he may seem to have a brilliant mind, but the fire of his genius also does not seem to have uh, boundaries. You know, boundaries aren't a bad thing. I mean, yes, we should not be um, severely limited. Uh, Yes, there shouldn't be uh, others out there telling us what we can and can't do on a daily basis. However, we all should realize that it's okay to have some limits sometimes. In other words, how far do we want to push ourselves? How far should we not only push ourselves as individuals, but at times are are the actions we are um, being a part of, not just for the greater um, society, but actions on an individual level, do they impact others around us? Yes, for better and for worse, depending on what's at stake. What I'm coming to realize is that while, yes, Robert Fulton does have a brilliant mind, Robert Fulton also sadly has a bad ego. Uh, Robert Fulton, there is a dark side to him who um, is very self-centered, sadly. I know I shouldn't say that. I know that sounds harsh. And yes, while we all do have, all of us can have flaws, the fire of Robert Fulton's genius, that is his own genius, has consumed him. Isn't it fair to say that uh, from the last podcast that his wife Harriet uh, saw him or came to see him as a man who lacked compassion, lacked emotion, lacked any kind of attachment towards the children and most of all towards his wife? And wasn't there a um, painting or a miniature portrait that Fulton himself had done of his wife? And the look on Harriet's face in this portrait was of Harriet looking out on the horizons, but with a uh, with a lot of uncertainty. So yes, Fulton has a lot of brilliant brilliancy, but yet when it comes to being around those who matter who ought to matter most to him, that um, it's it's opposite. I'm almost beginning to wonder: Is it fair to say that is Robert Fulton a man that we could? or a person that we can best characterize as saying the following, so close but so far away. In other words, yes, people knew him, but did they really know what he was like in private? Well, uh, our first leadoff question to the next uh, part of this um, 
segment to the uh, fire of his genius is the following. What high-profiled American statesman took legal matters into his own hands by directly attacking Robert Livingston's and Robert Fulton's monopoly come January 1814? So in other words, what high-profiled American statesman? I can tell you this much. He wasn't a former president. Uh, he did serve in the American Revolutionary War. He was an officer. He has uh, served in various um, state-level capacities from the state that he resides in and, and hails from originally. I don't believe many of you all would know his name, uh, but his name is the following. Uh, Colonel Aaron Ogden of Elizabethtown, now uh, known as uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey. So that's uh, for whom um, is going to take uh, legal matters into his own hands by directly attacking uh, the Livingston and Fulton monopoly come the very start of 1814. Why was Colonel Aaron Ogden um, wanting to challenge um, the uh, Livingston-Fulton monopoly? Well, for starters, he's no stranger to the steamboat uh, waterway navigation in industry because three years earlier in 1811, he had built a steamboat known as the Seahorse that ran between Elizabeth, New Jersey, and New York City. Okay, another competitor. It's fair to say that uh, Fulton, uh, prior to Livingston's death, and but most notably after Livingston's death, Fulton is in... Um, He's really in a, in a not so good place because now people are challenging him left and right. You know, the only reason why Fulton has, in my opinion, has such a credible well-being is because of his direct connections to Robert Livingston and the, Liv the Livingston family, but also because Robert Fulton himself married Robert Livingston's cousin, being, or, or rather his niece, uh, being um, Harriet Livingston. You know, it's one thing to have these great family connections and business connections, but then once um, your partner dies, you never know what surprises can come in store in terms of these uh, challenges that are coming now left and right from outsiders. So um, Colonel Ogden is a well-known lawyer, and he was a one-time um, former, um, well, he was a one-time former U.S. Senator from New Jersey, he became New Jersey's governor in 1812. But, but another unique advantage for Colonel Ogden is that he knew the inner workings of the New Jersey state legislature. And because he knew the ins and outs of the state legislature, this enabled him and a business partner by the name of Daniel Dodd to receive monopoly steamboat rights within the waters of New Jersey. Okay, so here... You know, Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston had um, monopoly steamboat rights along the Hudson River. I should point out that Elizabeth, New Jersey, is on the outskirts of Edison. You know, for whom Edison, New Jersey, is named after, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, um, Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb. Of course, Thomas Edison doesn't um, come until much later on, but um, and obviously at this time there is no Edison, New Jersey, but Based upon where I uh, work, being in the trucking industry, that's how I know that uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey. That's how I know about Elizabeth, New Jersey, in terms of where it's uh, located geographically in the Garden State. 
So, um, yes, whereas Livingston and Fulton had their monopoly steamboat rights along the Hudson, I should point out that uh, where um, Colonel Aaron Ogden hailed from is not far from the New Jersey-New York line. So could that also mean that perhaps the waterway that um, Colonel Ogden and his business partner Daniel Dodd, is it fair to say that, that they could run into an issue given the fact that their, um, their, their uh, steamboat, the uh, Seahorse, running between Elizabeth, New Jersey, and New York City, that they could have um, an issue with water, waterway rights. After all, just because the Hudson River is in New York, it doesn't mean that the Hudson River also goes into uh, the northern part of New Jersey. So basically, we're looking at waterway right issues, folks. Now, come January uh, 25th of 1814, Colonel Ogden went before the New York State Legislature by requesting that the Fulton-Livingston monopoly be repealed. He wants a full repeal. What is uh, a repeal, folks? Especially for you young people out there, if you're uh, listening to this, when someone wants something repealed, what does that mean? To have something repealed means that you want it completely removed altogether. The best example I can give you of um, of, of legislation or, uh, yes, like legislation being repealed, uh, the one that could come to my mind in terms of early American uh, history or colonial American history, how about uh, around 1766? At the start of 1766, Parliament repealed the infamous 1765 Stamp Act. For one, uh, Parliament wasn't collecting enough revenue off of this legislation. And secondly, they found out in a heartbeat how much of an uproar it was causing in the colonies to the point where the colonies even refused. The, the majority of people in colonial America refused the legislation. And of course, those who did support it more than likely were tarred and feathered, uh, to say the least. But there was enough of enough opposition towards this uh, piece of legislation that Parliament had no other choice in the end but to repeal the Stamp Act. So when repeal, when you think of repeal, think of uh, removing um, or striking something down as null and void, no longer valid, uh, irrelevant. So Colonel Ogden is has gone before the New York State Legislature on January the twenty fifth of eighteen fourteen. He is requesting that the Fulton-Livingston monopoly be repealed on the grounds that Robert Livingston did not fulfill his request of having a steamboat built to where it effectively sailed along the Hudson River's water round trip from New York to Albany, vice versa, within the same year's time of 1798. Remember, folks, uh, Livingston was told that he needed to have a boat um, out on the water before the end of 1798. I mean, he did have a boat. The problem was that the boat didn't work. In other words, I mean, it's not that it didn't work. It's just that it, it was not able to make a complete round trip. And, of course, around this time, 1797, 1798, that's when exclusive or what we call sole rights were first granted to Robert Livingston by the New York State Legislature. 
So Aaron Ogden is also disputing that Fulton's boat was not an entirely brand new one. Because I think for years we were kind of told that Robert Fulton, you know, just built this boat out of, you know, with his own bare hands. We'd like to think that was true, but but I'm beginning to wonder if, in fact, maybe Robert Fulton's been lying for quite some time and was able to cover it up thanks to the um, connections that he had with the Livingston family. So Colonel Ogden has disputed the fact that Fulton's boat wasn't entirely brand new, but instead one that bore resemblance to what John Fitch designed and patented back in 1791. We learned from a early, much earlier uh, podcast segment about John Fitch and how he um, was a gunsmith. He uh, was a surveyor in Kentucky, and he um, had a, um, a real fascination with uh, designing boats. So he, um, John Fitch, uh, remember, um, even conducted uh, trials of his, um, of his steamboat out on along the uh, Schuylkill River, or I should say the Delaware River, and it drew the attention of um, delegates uh, who were in Philadelphia in 1787 during the Constitutional Convention. They were all very impressed by what they had seen. So now I'm beginning to wonder if um, if the well, I don't know if I'd say the government, but perhaps Robert Fulton, along with the Livingstons, had been trying to cheat others out most notably Mr. Fitch, whom probably should have been given full rights to um, being the uh, author of America's First Steamboat, when in fact it really went to Robert Fulton. Well, despite Colonel Ogden's best efforts, the New York State Assembly voted 51 to 43 in upholding the Livingston-Fulton monopoly. That wasn't by a, a large vote, folks, 51 to 43, so that means 51 supported this, 43 were against it. It's probably fair to say that the majority of the 43 people voting against it are probably, are probably beginning to see for themselves that times are changing here. I mean, Robert Livingston has already passed away in 1813, so they know that it's just a matter of time before this monopoly might get broken up altogether. You know, it's one thing uh, when you have someone who's high up who can get uh, power in terms of having a monopoly, but now that America is changing, and now that uh, power isn't so much placed in the hands of a few, but it's now becoming placed more so in the hands of the many, yeah, I could see how over time um, a monopoly of this magnitude will uh, at some point come apart. So, yes, uh, the, in the meantime, the, the New York State Assembly does uphold the Livingston-Fulton monopoly, but Colonel Ogden is very persistent. He is uh, continuing to go forward with other suits regarding waterway rights services, such as from Manhattan into New Brunswick, including whether Fulton's whether or not Fulton's patent still had any validity, or I should say foolproof. January 14th of 1815, Aaron Ogden proved through existing documents that Robert Fulton's letter from 1793 to Lord Stanhope while he was in England wasn't genuine. And what I mean by genuine is it's not so much Fulton's handwriting in the letter, 
but the document did not have a European watermark. You know, a watermark being like a seal, um, like, a, like a government seal that would say, hey, that this was, um, that this was in fact actually written overseas, and the seal itself proves that it's going through, say, the, the mail system in England. That, that's, under, that's the impression I'm under. But the um, watermark had more of an American appearance to it. So I'm beginning to wonder if Robert Fulton could be forging things or just doing things to, um, get, to make sure that all the breaks go his way. Never know sometimes about what people are doing, even in this day and time. And what I mean by even in this day, really what I meant to say was in that day and time, meaning in the 19th century. Now, a former, or rather I should say a one-time friend of Robert Fulton's named Nathaniel Cutting, whom knew Fulton from overseas days in Europe, most notably in France, he testified by saying that Fulton more than likely borrowed copies of works, being that of drawings and sketches done by John Fitch, only to use those works by copying them to his advantage. Is this like a version of plagiarism? Of course, when I think of plagiarism, I think of, you know, writing. I think of, you know, when, when plagiarism happens, that's when someone has taken the work of someone else's writing and they have not put it in, say, quotations, because, you know, it's one thing to quote someone from a, from a writing, and yes, you need to, you know, quote, put that in quotation, but you also need to back it up by, by writing your response as to uh, what was noted in someone else's work through quote. So, Robert Fulton, yes, he, it's one thing to borrow a copy of someone else's work, but wouldn't you want to make sure that you brought the copies back to the person who was the original uh, designer of something? Sure. But at the same time, uh, Fulton is trying to take advantage of the system by using those same works that were done by John Fitch in terms of sketches and drawings by copying them to his advantage, largely in part because of the business ties that um, Fulton has uh, with amongst uh, Robert Livingston and the Livingston family. It's one thing for Robert Fulton to have had connections, but it's fair to say now that he really may not have been the true person whom invented the steamboat as we were led to believe for a number of years. I mean, I always thought Fulton was the inventor of the steamboat, but I've come to realize, even after having read this book, that um, that many other people before him experimented and um, sought out patents. But yet Fulton gets the, seems to get the the recognition for it because of um, because of whom his business partner is, and for the fact that he actually married into the Livingston family by marrying. Um, the Chancellor's uh, niece, um, Harriet. Had the New Jersey court hearing been a bitter event for Robert Fulton? Oh yes, it, it was a bitter one. Yes, he endured a, r a lot of wrath inside the courtroom alone. 
from all the uh, testimony, most notably by Colonel Aaron Ogden and Nathaniel Cutting. But it, just, it, it wasn't just what happened inside the courtroom alone. But it turns out that the majority of Fulton's one-time allies, being his friends, had now turned against him with regards to the past, prior to 1807. In other words, everyone was led to believe that come in 1807 that Fulton was making history, that Fulton had done the improbable. Some of these people probably knew about past attempts, like with what John Fitch did along the Delaware River 20 years earlier, but what people didn't realize was that Robert Fulton had gotten access to other people's um, sketches and drawings like, you know, John Fitch, like John Fitch's, and was replicating them to his advantage. It, is it safe to say that Robert, Living's, that Robert Fulton was trying to be the first to make history because of whom he was connected to and and by uh, being connected to whom he was, that he would get all the accolades over everyone else. Yeah. So, yes, uh, it is a bitter pill for his uh, former allies to have to swallow because, you know, here they were just so convinced that this friend of theirs was a genius. And while, yes, maybe he is a genius in a way, but it turns out that he... Uh, was uh, hiding a lot of um, dark secrets. Even that sounds vague, but sometimes uh, people have to be reminded of the fact that whom they are doing business with or whom they think is a friend sometimes isn't always what it's meant, what it would appear to be or seem to be meant to be uh, short and long term. Robert Fulton may have good intentions, but I would, knowing what I've learned about him, I think it would be very hard to be a business partner with him. Fulton has all these grand envisions, especially with those torpedoes, underwater naval mines. But even, but there but at the same time there were many skeptics about whom really were skeptical and hesitant about these naval mines. Okay, yeah, you have them on the ships uh, along the oceans. Okay, you use it and let's say it doesn't um hit its target being a British ship that's that's about ready to harass you or in the case with the war of eight, the war of 1812 along the uh, Delaware coastline he thought about um, having ships launch torpedoes at British ships only to have the intelligence come back and say hey there are American prisoners on some of these ships you know you attack a, a, a British ship but you you could also run the risk of uh, killing uh, American prisoners so it's like that old saying, be careful what you wish for. You may have some great ideas, but more often than not, the great ideas that you have will lose their uh, luster when dealing with others whom aren't so sure about what the long-term effects may be. So uh, while battling the court hearings, did Robert Fulton still have business? In other words, did he still have any kind of shipbuilding um, work going along? He did. Most notably in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, where a prized ship was being worked on, which was a war vessel. 
I bet it, and I bet it would have. Um, I, I have to wonder this war vessel that's being worked on. I wouldn't be surprised if it was going to have a torpedo or, or an underwater naval mine attached to it, because that really was. He really sought that out as his uh, crown jewel um, device. How come? There wasn't any ferry service operating along the Hudson River by the start of 1815. Think about that for a moment while I have a sip of tea. I'll tell you, nothing beats a good glass of tea. Hot tea, that is. But um, I, the question is the following. Uh, how come there wasn't any ferry service operating along the Hudson River by the start of 1815? Okay, start of 1815, uh, folks, uh, what uh, season would we be in? Well, for one, it was in the middle of winter. And secondly, the river itself had become completely frozen from all corners or sections. Well, if the Hudson River is completely frozen from all corners and sections, then what is virtually impossible, folks? Ferry service. If the river is frozen... There's no way in the world a boat's going to get across the river. There's, there's no way in the world it's going to even make leave the dock. So, why is all that important? Well, mid-February of 1815, after visiting a boatworks facility in, new, in Jersey City, New Jersey, Robert Fulton, along with a fellow named Thomas Emmett and two other men, knew that the only way they could get uh, to their destination was to cross the Hudson River, cross the solid frozen Hudson River by foot. Now, can you imagine crossing this, this solid frozen river? I mean, it would be one thing to think, okay, if it's solid frozen, that nothing could happen. One would think that, okay, maybe the ice is so thick that it will support these four people, these four men, going across. Um, but one thing I should be reminded is that even Mother Nature throws all kinds of curveballs even when there is completely frozen solid ice along a body of water. So for Robert Fulton and Thomas Emmett and, two, and these two other um, uh, companions, or um, I guess they were either business partners or friends of Fulton's and Emmett's, they are journeying along the uh, frozen Hudson River, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Mr. Emmett fell through the ice. Can you imagine falling through ice? You know, it's one thing to fall through ice, but, it's, uh, but we're also looking at a matter of minutes, a short amount of time for survival. Mr. Emmett, um, although he fell through the ice, Robert Fulton and the two other men in the party were able to rescue him. However, the experience was life-altering. Robert Fulton and the other two men went into immediate shock from the event. In other words, they probably, I mean, in other words, one of them or maybe all of them fell into the water trying to rescue uh, Mr. Emmett. But the bottom line is, is that they would have endured hypothermia, they would have endured a um, not just hypothermia, but the shock in terms of how cold the water was, and it had would have had a very um, sensitive stab-like feeling 
almost like a thousand knives hitting you at once. You know, this isn't a swimming pool, but, you know, temperatures are probably very well below zero to the point where once you fall in, it, it's a fight for um, survival. So, yes, they all, they all survive. I mean, thank heavens Mr. Emmett had help if he went along the water. If, I mean, if he walked along the Hudson by itself, the frozen Hudson, chances are he might not have come out alive. So Robert Fulton comes home. However, he comes home very exhausted, which is understandable. However, because he became so exhausted, he had difficulty in communicating to his wife, which brought on being confined to a bed. If he's having a hard time talking, and he's feeling signs of exhaustion or symptoms of exhaustion, I'm beginning to wonder if this could be the sign of um, something that, um, that people still can get to in today's world. Of course, there's, there's far more treatment for it, unlike in uh, 19th century time. Days after um, the incident uh, with Mr. Emmett, Robert, um, let me see here, Robert uh, Fulton did recover. Okay, that's good. And he recovered to where he felt it was okay to leave the home and go out for another visit to see his uh, prized steam vessel being built. However, it was the trip was a disastrous one. Not from a financial standpoint, nothing business, but medically. He, he returned home and fell and became uh, severely ill with symptoms of pneumonia. Yeah, you know, when one contracts pneumonia or gets pneumonia, it's not something you play around with. What's his face? Uh, president William Henry Harrison was only president for about, oh, less than 40 days. He made his inaugural speech or inauguration speech in cold, in very, very cold weather. And not long after making the speech, he came down with uh, symptoms. Uh, pneumonia symptoms to the point where um, he died not long after. So it's one of those um, diseases that you uh, simply just do not play around with. Once Fulton became bedridden with signs of pneumonia, things got even worse, such as um, coughing up blood. And I know that doesn't sound uh, pleasant, folks. But believe me, it's what happened to him. It was one thing to be coughing left and right, but he's coughing up blood. Anytime that happens to someone, you know that that is a, um, a red flag right there. And of course, in Fulton's time, we didn't, you know, there are no such things as telephones. So Mrs. Fulton can't call up and say, uh, can't call up 911 and say, I need an ambulance to come to our house. My husband is coughing up blood. I mean, she's literally watching him suffer. Then um, Fulton also is experiencing increase, an increase in inflammation in his lungs to where breathing becomes even more difficult. And come February 23rd, 1815, Robert Fulton sadly died. He didn't recover, folks. He died. 
He died at the age of 49 and a half, or 49 years old. He died from, uh, I would like to think it was, it was pneumonia, but um, historians know that he died from consumption. And I'm not talking, of course, when we think of consumption, maybe it would be fair to say like alcohol. No, it had nothing to do with alcohol. But another, but the early day, there's a disease called tuberculosis. But at one time in the 19th century, it was referred to as consumption. Tuberculosis um, is an infection of the uh, of the body from uh, the inside, and it's an infection of um, one or um, multiple organs. It may start in one organ, but then it can spread to other organs. In other words, it can um, you know, it can metastasize, if, if that's the right way of describing it. Uh, weight loss can come into play, and not only when one loses weight, that's when the infection of other organs can set in. So basically, uh, consumption, or what we know as tuberculosis, is an infectious disease. The disease alone um, was taking many people's lives in New York City, not just Robert Fulton's. But sadly, Robert Fulton died from tuberculosis, uh, and he probably died from pneumonia-like symptoms as well. But it is fair to say that because his because other organs were affected by what he was already experiencing, that it would be fair to say that he died from consumption, or what we know as tuberculosis. Uh, did the New York legislature uh, pass a resolution in honor of Robert Fulton? They did. However, this was a, a resolution that um, called for uh, one of sorrow and, and of um, prayer, grief, And uh, a resolution uh, calling for um, one of uh, sorrow would have required the assemblymen to have done what? From uh, assemblymen of both houses to do what? To wear mourning attire. So when one wears attire that would represent mourning, what color do you think that would be, folks? Is it red? Is it black? Or is it white? I mean, just think of the colors, folks. Uh, it, usually it's black. So, like, for example, if a woman wore a black veil to a wake or to a funeral, that means she is in a state of mourning. So, yes, uh, for that day and time, um, people would wear uh, primarily um, black attire, which would have meant that they were in a state of mourning. Now, uh, the, they were going to be doing this for an extended period of time. The state assembly, and I guess they just didn't know any better at the time, but they viewed Robert Fulton as a man without flaws. They were all in awe of what he accomplished. But then again, if they voted 51 to 43 to keep that Fulton-Livingston monopoly, isn't it fair to say, though, that the majority of that a good number of those people who opposed it, as I said earlier, knew that, um, that it would be a matter of time before the monopoly itself could be broken apart, or not just broken apart, but could could be completely abolished altogether, sure. And it might be fair to say that those who opposed might have seen or come to realize that maybe Fulton wasn't as real as they would have liked to have believed early on. 
So, but but regardless, they are putting aside their partisan differences and uh, paying their respects to someone whom um, really was considered to be the fire of his genius for the time in which he lived. Saturday, February 25th of uh, 1815, Robert Fulton was officially buried at Trinity Church Cemetery. And uh, what we now know is uh, right on the outskirts of New York's uh, financial uh, Wall Street district. But what's ironic about uh, Fulton's burial is that the body was placed in a vault owned by the Livingston family. Why did this happen, folks? Because Robert Fulton had not made any personal arrangements prior to becoming unexpectedly ill or just in general about where he wanted to be buried. But it does make sense that he is that the vault that he was uh, placed in was owned by the Livingston family, and given that he, and a, and a lot of this was just due to the fact that he of his uh, business ties with Robert Livingston, who had passed away two years before. At the time of Fulton's death, he had built sixteen steamboats total, with 13 of them currently operating on America's waters. Now, to me, that's uh, a great accomplishment. Is it fair to say Robert Fulton left his finances in complete disarray around the time he died? Yes, he did. However, during the time of Fulton's rise to power... <laughs> The practices of banking and accounting remained in an infancy state. So, in other words, uh, Robert Fulton can't just call up, um, can't go to the nearest accounting firm nearby. He can't go to, um, you know, he doesn't have um, advisors. I mean, well, I'm sure there probably were people who could have advised him on things, but remember, he, he was so... Um, sensitive about um, what could be done. In other words, he didn't even allow those who worked for him to be able to um, build a boat without his permission. So if he was that, if he was sensitive about that, then I could see how he would have been sensitive about having someone above tell him how to go about managing his uh, business affairs. So for uh, Robert Fulton, yeah, I mean, he's living in a time when the practices of banking and accounting remained in an infancy state in America. Fulton, along with Chancellor Livingston, were men who um, knew how to properly... How do I put it this way? Robert Fulton, along with uh, Chancellor Robert Livingston, were men whom did not know how to properly manage their finances. They spent money left and right without turning to the equivalent of a modern-day accounting auditor or a financial advisor. They just spent the money on what they felt was necessary to have it be spent on. And while, yes, they may have seen that, okay, maybe we did go over, but we'll just ignore it. The rest, the rest of it will take care of itself. If Robert Fulton had managed his finances better, his, some historians have said that his estate could have been worth up to half a million dollars, 500000 It would have been a rare feat for his time. Had it happened, 
considering many well-known statesmen died with large sums of outstanding debts. Robert Fulton, along with uh, Robert Livingston in their time, there was no such thing as Chapter 7 or uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing procedures. What we know is uh, bankruptcy um, filings aren't going to come until much later in the 19th century. How did uh, Robert Fulton's wife, Harriet, fare after her husband's passing? Do you think she was left broke, or do you think she um, managed to modify her situation by, um, by doing what was necessary to stay afloat financially? Well, she, she did the uh, smarter choice in being uh, choice B. After her husband's uh, passing, um, Harriet bought out her brother's part of an estate known as uh, Teviotdale. That's spelled T-E-V-I-O-T-D-A-L-E. I would probably have thought it would be Teviotdale, but I'm going to pronounce it as Teviotdale. It must be somewhere not far from Claremont, um, from the famous Claremont estate. Now, she is left a widow and a widow with four children. That's a lot of children, folks. And the oldest was probably about seven years old by the time his father died. Fulton left behind a son and three daughters. He didn't really have much relationship with them. And it's sad, to me that's sad, because Robert Fulton lost his father right before he was ten years old, and there wasn't much of a relationship there. Wouldn't you think that Fulton would have wanted to have... Um, not made the same mistakes as his father did? Or do you think maybe his father was consumed by the fire of his genius in trying another uh, business adventure that failed so badly that it was that it resulted in uh, having to sell off the land only to leave the family with nothing on their shoulders? I mean, you know, it is, it's a sad, uh, what do you call it, it's a sad uh, comparison almost, to say the least. I mean, Robert Fulton's wife and children aren't um, left destitute, but they've had to make some sacrifices. However, um, Harriet Livingston and her children downsized to a smaller home, and in November of 1826, Harriet Livingston Fulton remarried she married an Englishman named Charles Dale. Not long after they married, they um, went across the ocean to live in England. I think for Harriet Livingston Fulton, she, um, she needed a better life. And the only way to get, to get away from it all was to go overseas with her new husband, because being in America may have been too much for her to have bore, knowing that her husband left them in, fin in almost close to financial disarray, that her husband was so consumed by the fire of his genius that her husband um, had shown little um, emotions towards them. She needed to be in a new environment. Well, um, 
that wraps it up for this uh, podcast uh, session. And uh, I'll try to be back on the air again uh, sometime here soon. But when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about legacy. We're going to talk um, as much as there is about Robert Fulton's legacy. Because his legacy is one that... Um, his legacy really could be one that has a story to tell for itself. It might be fair to say that even after Fulton died, that the steamboat itself went on to um, become even more revolutionary. There was already steam um, steamboat ferry operations up in uh, al um, along the East Coast, but we might we might come to the realization that steamboat is steamboat operation service is going to be more than just along the east coast well um thank you for your time as always and uh thank you um for being such great listeners you guys are um, amazing uh without you all i don't believe i would have uh, gotten to the level where i'm at now um hard to believe that um oh i would say in less than five weeks time it will mark two years uh, since I first began podcasting. I feel like I've been doing this a lot longer than two years, but it's been a great ride. But the ride itself um, won't be ending anytime soon, not just for this um, topic, but hopefully, you know, there's still a lot more to be done. So thank you again, and I look forward to being back on the air again with all of you next time. Stay safe.